All right. We are, we are, we are in a series in 1 Corinthians and uh, taking the, the first uh, several chapters of this to also just step back and say, what is a local church about? I highlighted that a bit earlier in the announcements. What is a church about? What are the foundations, not merely of our church, but any church? And it's a good place then to talk about the essentials of our church. Now, now we have said before, and it is in your booklet, I put it up here on the screen, that BP Church is a family in Christ being changed by God's truth, impacting others by His grace. That's what we want to be. We are family together, being changed. That implies some growth. Impacting others, that implies some serving. And we say we're going to express that. We're going to live that together as family in three essential ways. We're going to live that out together as family by worshiping together, by growing together, and thirdly, by serving together. And so the first chapter talked about that essential identity that we are family together in Christ. And that first chapter of 1 Corinthians talks a lot about our identity in Christ and the transforming impact of the gospel upon us and the need of that same gospel for others. All of that's in chapter 1. Chapter 2 speaks to, it does have some things that speak to, grow, uh, to worship, especially the fact that worship is Christ-centered. Paul says, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Our worship here at Brush Prairie Baptist Church will be Christ-centered. We will focus. If you notice the songs before, before I'm speaking this morning, again, there was that pointing back to the cross. We, we want to remind ourselves of the gospel. We desperately need it. He said, no, no, I'm already saved. I already have, have been accepted and cleansed, forgiven by God. My, my home in heaven is secure, absolutely. And I need day by day to remind myself of the gospel. I need to remind myself of my identity in Him, not merely in myself. Our worship will be Christ-centered. We need to worship together. We need to worship to, to help one another. You know, I'm so grateful for those on the worship team who serve. We call this a worship service, right? And they serve in, in instruments and vocally. They serve to help us to worship. Aren't you glad for that? Aren't you glad that they're willing to use those gifts and skills in that way for the, for the benefit of the church as a whole? I know it frees me to sing and express myself in ways that I probably wouldn't otherwise. And I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for the voices that surround me so that I don't so much hear my own. Some of you are grateful for that too, I see. But, but that serving together, you see, that helps us, enables us in worshiping. At worshiping together, growing together. And, and Pastor Ryan, oh, I forgot to speak to that earlier. We'll, 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 we'll do something special at the close of the service. But Pastor Ryan, as the church called uh, Ryan McKinney as our youth pastor last, last week at our business meeting, uh, he shared with us last week that we are growing together, that we were born to grow, that we're not to meant to, be, to remain as infants, but to, but to grow in the measure of stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ-likeness grown and developed in us. Interestingly, key ways in which we grow are in worshiping and in serving. In worshiping where we are reminded and we take in God's truth and we're encouraged to do something with it. And in serving together. You could compare it to good food and good exercise. Two things that are key in growing and developing even, even human development. Children to adults. Good food. 
Isn't that right, Josh? Josh is over there. That's, that's it. Good food and good exercise. And so we're going to talk this morning about how that we live to serve. That we live to serve. And serving actually is how we live in that life that Christ has given us, the one who came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom for many. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and as you turn there, if you, if you brought a Bible this morning, then uh, you'll find us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're using one of the pew Bibles this morning, then go ahead and pull that out, because I want you to follow along. I want you to see God's word before you as we, as we speak of it. Uh, we will be on page 953. So 1 Corinthians chapter 4. What I'm going to do is I'll read each section as we go. So a handful of verses uh, piece by piece. So the first thing we're going to look at is that when we serve together, we, are, we, we, we seek to serve God faithfully. And the key to all of these, I'll give you all three of them up front. Serve God faithfully, serve others sacrificially, and serve together graciously. In each of those, faithfully, sacrificially, Graciously, in each of those, the adjective is the key. Serve God faithfully. Look for that as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 to 5. Look for serving God faithfully. This is how one should regard us, Paul says, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy or faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court in regard to my faithfulness. I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. I'm not vindicated by my own estimation. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart, then each one will receive his commendation from God. Father, thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word. Thank you that your word speaks to us. Father, open it up to us. Lord, we pray a simple prayer. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your word. Show us things about the Lord Jesus and how we can walk with him. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. There are, there are, there are a couple of key terms in that first section. Key terms are servants and stewards. The word servant here is different than the regular word for servant and slave, which is the uh, term that we use today for our deacons. Don't know if you knew that, Charlie. It's a slave word. Yeah, he said, I already knew that. I figured that out. But the, it's, and that, that heightens the aspect of serving. But this is a different word. It has a slightly different connotation. It has the idea of an appointed agent. It wasn't really... It, 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 wasn't, it, it, it actually has a lowly beginning as, a, as the under rower, the bottom deck rowers on a ship. But in the New Testament era, it was used for much more than that. It was used for the temple police, the temple officials who were sent to arrest the apostles. It was used for other officials who were sent on an errand here or there. So the idea is especially one who is appointed to a task, one who is appointed to a particular responsibility. And uh, they don't have authority on their own. Their authority in that responsibility lies with the one who appointed them. In that sense, it's related to that idea of an apostle who is a sent messenger sent on behalf of the apostles of, of God are those who are sent messengers by God himself. 
But this is an appointed servant carrying out assigned duties, not a self-employed boss. So the apostle does not consider himself self-employed. It's funny, pastors are treated in, in, in employment laws in the U.S. as self-employed in certain aspects. I don't know why I bother to share that, but it's, it's a unique thing. But I don't, think, I don't think the elders of the church here believe that I'm self-employed. I'm accountable to them, and we are especially accountable to God. That, that we are not self-employed. We are not merely to do what it is that we desire and choose to do. We are servants. We are appointed agents. And the other word is, is, is really close to that. It's the word steward. And stewards were managers. Managers are of a household. Managers of a business. I know there are several of you that, that are managers in a particular enterprise. Or you manage your own household. But especially if you manage an enterprise for somebody else. Those things do not belong to you. That store does not belong to you. That business does not belong to you. But you manage it on, on behalf of others. And so you're accountable to them for how you manage it. And what's most essential is that you manage those affairs faithfully as the owner intends that you would. So in both of those... Now, what is it that we are stewards of? It says there in verse, uh, in verse 1 that we are stewards of the mysteries of God. That word mysteries, it refers to the truth of the gospel, but in a particular aspect. It refers to... When, when it says mysteries, it's not a whodunit. It's not a mystery to be solved. Call Sherlock Holmes. A mystery is something that can't be known to us by our own means unless God reveals it. So God has a message, and he has revealed it to his stewards whose job it is to take that to the people who will not know it otherwise. Okay? So we are, we are servants or agents. We are stewards, stewards of the mysteries of God, and it must be that we fulfill our duty so that the mystery of God, his gospel, is known. Now, it's unusual for Paul's audience to hear of uh, those public speakers, and those who were in leadership of a group of people to be talking of themselves in this servant and steward accountable to other language. That was unusual for them. They, they, um, they, they normally thought of it in terms of authority and power and position and prestige. We'll see more of that as we go on. But remember, in the church it's different. At church, it seems like things are turned upside down. But in reality, the world is upside down, has been from Genesis chapter 3. And what God has done in Christ is he has begun to turn the world again right side up. He is redeeming that which was broken and fallen and upside down. And he's restoring it again, life by life, individual by individual, person by person, by the power of the Spirit, into the likeness again of Christ, and Jesus himself, his disciples come along. His disciples, recognizing that he's the Messiah, recognizing he's going to come into his kingdom, his disciples say to him, a couple of them, James and John, they come one day and they say, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, and we know that you will, so when you come into your kingdom, can we have those best seats right there next to you? One on your right, the other on your left. And Jesus says, no, guys, you're looking at it wrong. You're looking at it wrong don't be like the nations. Don't be like the world around you seeking for power and position. For not even the Son of Man. 
Not even that great messianic figure that Daniel introduced, the king of kings and the lord of lords who would come and establish his kingdom over all the world. Not even that son of man came to be served, but to serve and to give his life. That's the context of that statement that we know well about Jesus. The context is in turning right side up again, our upside down ambitions. We are to serve God faithfulness. Now the key issue is faithfulness. A, a qualification in that, he says, is it's, it's, it's not for me to judge my own faithfulness. My perspective is skewed. I don't understand. I can easily elevate myself. I can easily think too much of myself, or I can easily think too little of myself, which is disabling, which keeps me out of serving. The issue is simply faithfulness judged by the Lord himself. This is not an invitation to ignore assessment, to ignore the input of others, but it, it is a reminder to realize it's shortcoming, it's fallacy. There's, a, there's something called the fundamental attribution error or the fundamental attribution fallacy. And what it means, in a nutshell, we easily assume that others' actions are the result of their character. While we more readily understand and give ourselves the benefit of the doubt that our actions are a result of of complex circumstances around us beyond our control, and we should we rather judge ourselves based on our intentions. Can I boil that down? You make judgments about other people based on what you see them do. You make judgments of yourself based on your best intentions. You can see how that's going to end up a little lopsided, isn't it? Yeah. We don't know. That person that, that, that ran that light and cut you off, you didn't know that they were rushing somebody who'd had a heart attack or maybe was in labor ready to give birth to the hospital. And yeah, they still don't want to run a red light and crash into somebody, but their mind is fixed on a crisis at hand which you know nothing about as you spoke poorly of them as they sped along. Right? We judge others based on actions we see. We judge ourselves much more generously based on our best intentions, as only we know them. But it's okay, it balances out. Guess how other people are judging you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. They don't know your intentions, and frankly, they don't care. Yeah. Yeah. But the Lord judges me. The issue is faithfulness, that we serve God faithfully, and I want to turn that two ways. It's obvious in the text that aspect of faithfully carrying out a stewardship, faithfully carrying out an appointment that God Himself has given us. That's clear. But there's another aspect there of not judging another, not judging ourselves, but the Lord will judge at His coming. And then each one's commendation or praise will come from God Himself. You see, when I serve God faithfully, when I serve God full of faith, that's another side of it, that I am serving confident that it's not about me. It's not about all of those things that I think would disqualify me. It's not about all those ways that I think I don't measure up. It's a reminder that I serve in faith knowing that he has accepted me in Christ Jesus, that I have been made fully complete in God's eyes, standing before him because of Jesus who died for me and rose again. And so I can serve. We may come along with a piece of, well, I couldn't do that. Yeah, you yourself, you couldn't. Who are you? 
except in Christ. You are an heir of God. You are a son of glory. You are a child of the King. You are an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that's serving faithfully with my faith in him who has already served me. Serving together is an issue of faithfulness and stewardship, not judging one another. You know one of the things that's crippling in a church when people dare to take a chance to step up? One of the things that's in their mind, if, they, if I took on this role, if I took that task, if I took that responsibility, if I accepted that appointment that might be from God himself, if I accept that, what are other people going to say about what I do? What criticism might I receive? And that keeps people from jumping in. That we need to be a church body that will serve faithfully together. We'll serve in faith, and our, and our greatest faith is not in one another. Our faith is in our God, who by his grace has equipped and put all of us into service together. That we serve God faithfully. Secondly, what that looks like is we serve others sacrificially. Look for this as I read verses 6 to 13. Serve others sacrificially. So he says, we've applied these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, Corinthian church, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you would be puffed up in favor of one against another, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, you see how grace-oriented this is. If you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign as kings so that we might share the rule with you. Would that Christ's kingdom had already come. But it hasn't. Not yet. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor and we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Wow. That puts a different spin on it. Going beyond what, it, what is written basically refers to there are four times when Paul quotes, as it is written, up till now, twice in chapter 1, twice in chapter 3 in 1 Corinthians, and each time it speaks to the wisdom of the world and the pride of man. He says, be careful. Don't follow the wisdom of the world into its pride. Don't go there. Instead, we need to turn things right side up again. And by turning them right side up, the admonition not to be puffed up, he gets a little tongue-in-cheek, and he challenges them. He says, you, you, you... Your, your examples, your way, your expectation, your assumptions about how life should be for yourselves in all of God's blessing, Paul says, it's confusing to me because it hasn't been my experience. It's interesting that you have been so blessed and have so much, and yet that's contrary to the experience of not only Paul, but all of the apostles. 
he, he contrasted it. He said, con- contrary to their and, dare I say, are. Let me, let me make a point right up front, and then, and then I'll come back to this at the end. We are influenced by the American dream. We are influenced by what our culture tells us is normal and what we ought to expect and how things ought to be and what we are, dare I say, entitled to. We are influenced by the American dream and we are in pursuit of it. And we expect God's blessing to look like the American dream fulfilled. But if we, if we set that up against 1 Corinthians 4, we find a different story. We find a warning here because Paul warns them those things that they desire, those things that they expect, those things that we also have a propensity to seek are contrary to the mind of Christ. They are contrary to that mind of Christ displayed by his apostles. We have a propensity to seek fullness. We are full. We are filled. We are satiated. We have everything we need, at least to be comfortable. When when it says that Jesus, Philippians 2, Jesus emptied himself. We seek wealth. Jesus became poor so that he might make us rich spiritually. We seek power, positions of authority, and control over others or at least control over our own circumstances. Where Paul says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ. Jesus came and we, yeah, you see his authority, but you also see his meekness and his gentleness and his humility. How he submitted himself. We seek credentials. They might be academic credentials. They might be a position or a title. One of the secrets out there, out there in the workaday world is you may not be able to pay somebody more, but you can give them a better title, and that at least will help. But while we see credentials, wisdom of the world and esteem of others, Christ has become for us wisdom. Let the one who boasts, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord not in ourselves. We seek honor. We we seek the recognition of others. But Jesus himself was despised and rejected of men. Could it be that the American dream is contrary to the mind of Christ on many fronts? I know that's, that's, that's difficult to say, especially on a holiday weekend. But beware that the ways of this world, not merely the American dream, the wonderful country that we have, and I'm convinced that our capitalist system is the best system for fallen humanity with its inherent checks and balances. I'm not arguing for something other than that. But beware that you, because you are born to a different world. You are born to a heavenly calling. Our citizenship is in heaven from where, where we wait for our Savior. And we look for a city like Abraham. We look for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God himself. Don't be satisfied with lesser things. Beware that our hearts become fat by, which it, by that which is not good for us. And can, can uh, distract us from pursuing the mind of Christ that there we might know him. The world's estimation is upside down. Paul says that we, we, we apostles, he said, we have been exhibited as a spectacle, as the, as the scum of the earth, as the refuse. Those terms were used for criminals 
and those who were in some way deformed who would be annually purged from society. That's what those words were used for. And that was true of Christians in the first century. They were to be gotten rid of. They were inconvenient. That was, that was how the world esteemed Jesus himself. The Jews said he is not worth living. Pilate said, Rome's authority decreed that he was not worth saving. Much more convenient to have him out of the way. If that was how the world esteemed Christ, why would we expect it to be too different? Jesus himself said, they, they, they will hate you because they hated me. So it shouldn't be surprising if we take some shots now and again, if we take some flack now and again. It ought to surprise us rather if, every, if in every way we, like the Corinthians, are full and rich and powerful and strong and honored. Beware. We cannot get closer to Jesus from the comfort of our own fulfillment. Did you get that? We cannot more experience the mind of Christ and knowing our Savior and be in closer relationship with Him in the midst of our own fulfillment and comfort because that's not where we meet Him. That's not where we know Him. That's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 that I might enter into even the fellowship of His sufferings so that I might know Him. Yeah. Serving, giving myself in serving, like the one who came to serve, is not merely because there's stuff that needs to be done. Serving is, is, is the pathway by which, as I give of myself in ways that cost me something, that is my opportunity to know him more fully. The one who gave everything that I would know him. We cannot get closer to Jesus from the comfort of our own fulfillment. To the extent that we enter into his suffering and sacrifice, there is where we will know him. There is where we will know what he has done for us. Thinking too much about ourselves. Thinking too much about ourselves keeps us from serving. Thinking too much about me keeps me from serving others sacrificially because I think, well, I couldn't do that. I don't have the ability. I'm thinking about me. Or maybe it's, well, I won't do that. Somebody should do that, but it's beneath me. Somebody else should do it. Or, it's not that it's beneath me. I just don't want to do that. I don't really enjoy doing that. It is a wonderful thing to be able to serve the Lord in the area of your giftedness. Doing those things that he has made you and that he has caused you to be born again and being transformed to do. To serve in that energizing of the Spirit is a wonderful thing. And yet, aren't there things that you do even in the midst of family? How about it, moms and dads? Things that you do in the midst of family that you do not because you enjoy doing that, but because it needs doing for the sake of others. Yeah? Sure there is. Thinking too much about ourselves will keep us from entering into sacrificial service. What about, I might fail. I might not succeed. And then what will others think of me? You see? Push that aside. And let's, as a church, agree to push that aside. I'm so grateful for the boss who said to me, now and again, and 
It was just now and again that he would say this. He said, Bob, if you're not making a mistake, you're not doing anything. And he was giving me permission to fail because he wanted to give me permission to step out and serve. And we are going to make some mistakes. And as a church together, we're going to be that kind of a church body that doesn't criticize, but rather builds up and strengthens and encourages. We are going to be that kind of a church that based on the mercies of Christ, we will give ourselves in worship. We will present our bodies a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, because that is our spiritual service of worship. We will serve God faithfully. We will serve others rather than ourselves sacrificially. It'll cost us something. It should. That's good for us. And we will serve together graciously. I've already alluded to that on how we respond to one another. And you see Paul's change in tone as we go from verse 14. He says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed. He says, I'm not trying to embarrass you. I'm trying to be clever enough in my communication that you get the point. I'm a little tongue-in-cheek questioning your prosperity against my adversity. He says, yeah, I'm doing that, but my point is not to shame you, not to embarrass you. I'm not trying to, trying to just stir you up and antagonize them against me. No, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you you do not have many fathers. I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then, be imitators of me. He said, let there be that family resemblance. As I shared the gospel with you, follow me, continue to follow me in that gospel. He tells the Corinthian church elsewhere, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul's not trying to make a whole bunch of mini Pauls who follow him. This is not a personality cult. This is the church of Jesus Christ that belongs to him and should honor him. I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you, Timothy, my beloved and faithful child, in the Lord to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. What are they really? Where are they really? What has God done in their life? How are they changed? How do they represent Christ? What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? You know in some way what Paul's saying? He's saying like that father, hearing the ruckus upstairs, don't make me come up there. Yeah, you can identify with that. Wouldn't it be better if they just would happily submit that he could come up and praise them for cleaning the room, not have to go up and discipline because they've thrown the toys all over? Wouldn't that be better? That's what he's wanting. And I love the way he brings up Timothy as an example here. There's something that we can learn from that. There's another practical takeaway that we can do from here. Instead of assuming why somebody else doesn't serve, do you remember that fundamental attribution error? Instead of assuming why somebody doesn't serve, what if you invited someone else in? What if you invited someone else to come alongside? What if recruiting wasn't my job, but yours? What if recruiting in various areas of ministry was your responsibility right where you are, wherever you serve, to grab somebody and invite them alongside? And some of you are saying, well, I don't have that place, so I guess I'm off the hook. No, there's people coming looking for you. I have just appointed them. But to, to ask ourselves, where could I serve? But instead of assuming why others don't, invite them alongside. Ask them to serve with you. I've seen this in you. Would you consider? That takes 
observing and caring about and knowing one another. I've seen how you do this or that. Could I serve along with you? How about inviting yourself in with somebody that you see serving? I've seen how you do that. Could I, could I help you? And they say, oh, I, I couldn't do that. Well, just, just, just help. Just come alongside and just see what the Lord does with that. Invite one another. Be willing to invite. Invite yourself in to come alongside others. We, we as a church would love, it's not a matter of filling, there's all kinds of jobs in the church that we need filled. We would love to, to help you fulfill the God-given dreams that God gives you about how you could be used by Him. What does that look like? What do you need? What would be the next steps in stepping forward into that by God's grace? Time is running out. We don't know how much time we have. Martin Luther was asked, speaking of Paul coming or the Lord coming, uh, Martin Luther was asked, Martin, if you, what would you do if you knew that the Lord was coming today? Later on, today. No Memorial Day tomorrow, because the, the Lord is coming today. Have I used this illustration before? I think I have. That's okay. What Martin answered, he said, I would plant an oak tree. Martin, why would you plant an oak tree? The Lord is coming today. The oak tree, an oak tree takes 20 years to grow. Why would you plant an oak tree? Because when the Lord comes, I want him to find me giving myself to something that will last. Yeah. Let's serve that way. Let's serve in Christ's way in ways that he has appointed us. Let's serve him faithfully because we want him to find us serving in something that will last when everything else fades away. You say, well, where, where for me? How for me? Well, I don't know. That's kind of disappointing, isn't it? All that build up to, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not in the business of the appointing so much, but the Spirit is. But there's a couple of ways we can help. For instance, what's most important in a church? When you're considering just churches, things churches do and don't do, what's most important to you when you consider a church? You have things in mind. Do that. Get involved there because that's a sensitivity. And don't look down on other things that are equally important, but they're not your passion. But serve in that passion that God has given you for his church. What is it that this church should really be doing? You know, I get suggestions all the time. You know what the church really should be doing is? And man, I get a list. And I sit down and I look at that list and I'll never get all this done. And so I just don't. Yeah, that's freeing, really. But you know what I learned a while ago? People, people stopped bringing me those ideas because what I, what I do, is I, I learned this from a friend years ago, was that that's, that's a wonderful idea. And I, and I see that God has given you a passion and a sensitivity toward that need. So how can I help you to do that? And all of a sudden the idea just fades away and it's not nearly as important anymore. But it is, is the point. It is important. But if, 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 if a few people were going to be doing all of this stuff, well, it can't happen. And the reason we notice things, folks, is because maybe God has put that upon us for us. When you see that thing, and some of you are thinking right now, well, I see things, and yet I'm busy with stuff, and I would need to unload some stuff in order to do what I really think God has 
And we're game for that. No, no position structures are so essential in the church that we will have people serving outside the area of your giftedness, which brings me to something else. Next week, we're going to jump ahead in 1 Corinthians. We're going to talk about spiritual gifts. Because we're just talking about serving together. Well, we want to be serving together in the areas of our giftedness. So the last thing in this foundation series we want to talk about is spiritual gifting. And for that, if you want to work ahead, if you're really one of the, I'm going to be ahead of the curve on this. That's right, I'm going to. All right, good. There are some spiritual gift inventories on the back table. On that table, the same 150 table where I told you you could pick up booklets, you can also get a spiritual gift inventory the Lifeway publishes. It's, you know, there's lots of these. You can find online ones, and there's all kinds of ones. So this is just one available tool, and it's not, it's not sent from heaven or anything like that, but it's a good tool to help you understand different giftings and what some of your giftings could be. And then you can pr- have prayerful conversations about those with others. And as we talk about spiritual gifts and the use of them, you already have some idea of what yours look like. So those are available. They'll be available this week. They'll be available next, next week. There's an insert in your bulletin. I'd like you to consider this, this insert in terms of ways that you could serve within the church. And there are many ways to serve from the church. But we could be a starting point here. We could be a launching point here. The, This is a great opportunity. I'd like you to consider things there. Prayerfully consider where I don't want those of you that are serving in three places already to be looking for number four. I I want all of us to be worshiping together, growing together, and to know this is a ministry that God has given me for the sake of the church, for the building up of his body. I want to know that there is a ministry like that that I'm supposed to be a part of. This is my ministry. These are my family chores, so to speak, for the good of our family as a whole. Use that for Christ's glory. Want to be aware of the, what I'll call the fundamental procrastination fallacy. There's a fundamental attribution fallacy. There's also a fundamental procrastination fallacy. You know what I mean. That's good. I need to serve. I'm going to do that. Sometime. Sometime. Why not now? Why not say, if God is putting that on your heart, yeah, I need to be exercising because I want to grow, because I want to worship Him. And I don't merely worship in song. I will worship presenting my body. As much as with you, make BP Church a place of serving others so that Christ will be seen in our midst. Amen? Let's pray. Father, as we have talked about serving together, Lord, there, there is always much to do. But Lord, we want to be agents appointed by you. We want, Father, your direction. We want your spiritual leadership by your spirit into our lives that we would bear fruit in the ways and the means that honor you. Lord, would you direct us into serving? Father, would you guard us from complacency? Would you guard us from our own fulfillment? That instead that we might serve God faithfully by stepping into that sacrificial mind of Christ. Lord, that out of that, the gracious essence of Jesus himself might be all the more evident in this body together and each one individually. That, Father, not for our sakes merely, but for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Direct us, Father, into your place of service for Jesus' sake. Amen.